Welcome to Willoughby Hills. I'm Heath Rosella. Got a good one for you today. I'm talking to two filmmakers. Melinda Merker is my guest, and David Clayton Miller is my guest. Melinda directed and David produced the new film, We Live Here, the Midwest. It's now streaming on Hulu. And it's a really interesting project. I am very happy that Melinda and David made time to chat with me today. They went out to the Midwest and they filmed the stories of LGBTQ plus people living in the Midwest right now. And I, and I should say not just people, families. Family is a big focus of this documentary as well. What does it mean to be raising kids as an LGBTQ plus family in the Midwest in 2023, 2024? That's the topic of the film. And it's an interesting one. You know, for me, I have Midwestern roots. I was born outside of Cleveland, lived there for the first 18 years of my life, lived in Missouri for about a year. My family are still in Missouri, a lot of them. And I have some gay family members. I have at least three cousins that are gay, one of whom got married a year or two ago. And at least two of them are still living in Ohio. And I guess even knowing these cousins, even having family in the Midwest, even feeling a deep-rooted sense of Midwesternness within myself, I wasn't aware of just what the reality on the ground looks like, particularly in rural communities right now. There's a lot of fear. There's a lot of misunderstanding. But at times there's acceptance too, which is kind of interesting. And what I like about this film is it is just very straightforward. When you watch it, it's the story of several different families. They tell their own story. There's no narrator. There's not a ton of action happening. It's it's kind of like a video version of this podcast, I guess, in a way. Like, it's just listening to people telling their stories. And through hearing their stories, you understand their struggles. And you can see how the politics and policies are shaping these families' lives right now, today. And, you know, it's interesting, like, we're coming off of Martin Luther King Day this week as well. And I think so often we think of history as a binary, right? Like, segregation was bad, then Dr. King marched, and it went away. Or, you know, Obama became president, and there's no more racism, which, of course, is not true at all. But you'll hear me in this interview, like, I got caught thinking that way about LGBTQ issues, that, like, okay, marriage equality happened, things are good, right? Right. You know, people watch Queer Eye. Everything's solved. But of course, that's not the case. You know, there's always kind of this push and pull with rights being gained, rights being taken away in this country. And that is very top of mind for a lot of individuals in this community right now. And I think it's funny, too, when it comes to big issues, whether that's racism, sexism, homophobia, whatever it is, we can get lost in the generalities. We can think about these issues in the abstract as as a policy matter. But I like how Melinda and David have flipped that and said, let's look at it as one person's story. What does discrimination do to that family? It's something I encourage you to watch. And it's something I encourage you to share with your family members, your friends, who may not have a full understanding of exactly what these issues mean. What does it mean to be gay and black in Nebraska? What does it mean to have been a cis-hetero couple where one of the people in the couple ends up being trans and goes through a transition with the same partner? What does that do 
to their marriage? What does that do to their partnership? What does that do to their kids? These are all issues dealt with in the film. And again, they're not abstract. This isn't some politician grandstanding. This is a very specific, here is a family, think about their life. And we'll talk in this conversation today, too, just about the precariousness. I think of everybody's existence right now. I mean, no matter which issue you care about, whether it's LGBTQ rights, whether it's racial discrimination, whether it's bodily autonomy, these are all things that are under threat right now. These are all things that I think the majority of people feel one way about, and a small but vocal minority within the government feels differently, and they are trying to impose their perspective on all of us. That should be scary, that should be eye-opening, and it should be something that we're all thinking about and considering, and ultimately demanding change on. So anyways, that's all outside the scope of this film, I guess, but it's all related as well. You can't just look at one issue right now and only see that one issue, I think. All of these things are related. All of these things require our voices, require our collective action, and require us standing up and demanding change. So I hope you'll do that, whatever your issue is. In this case, with Melinda and David, it is around LGBTQ rights, and that is important as well because they are under threat, and they are especially under threat in the Midwest, which is where this film starts. So we live here, the Midwest, streaming now on Hulu. Go and watch that. And before we get to the interview, I just want to remind you that I have a newsletter that I publish twice a week, every Wednesday and every Sunday. If you'd like to get on the list to receive those in your inbox, you can go to heathrasala.com slash newsletter, heathrasala.com slash newsletter. Sign up for free there. If you'd like to support the work that I do on this podcast and the newsletter, you can also sign up for a paying membership that will help the work that I do here, but it will also get you early access to the podcast right in your inbox every week or every other week, I guess. That's when I do episodes every other week of the podcast and twice a week for the newsletter, heathrasella.com slash newsletter. Go and check that out. And thank you for your ongoing support of this little project. All right, here it is, my conversation with Melinda Merker and David Clayton Miller. So um, I watched the film the other day, and I was impressed with, with the project itself, but maybe even more impressed by the end of it, watching the end credits. I mean, there were maybe a dozen people <laughs> at the most, it looks like, uh, involved with this film, which tells me that you both were very hands-on with it. Um, I'm just curious, before we dive into the film itself, sort of how your partnership formed and sort of how you two found each other and, and decided to work together on this. David and I had worked on a project together, gosh, ages ago, about LGBTQ families. Uh-huh. And it was really how they came together, the different possibilities for having a family, for expanding your family. Um, and this was before the 2016 election. So it was a very joyful, happy video and photography project. Yeah. I mean, a lot changed <laughs> between then and now, right? And it was because of that 2016 election, we started thinking, hmm, you know, there started to be a backlash of marriage equality passing. Sure. And I wanted to look into what it was like for gay families now that gay marriage is, is legal to see how they are faring in this new administration. Yeah. And we started to do research together and, and really found out that, you know, 
there were some issues that you know we didn't necessarily really hear about that much. And so we started to explore that. And then we wanted to focus on the Midwest because that is, after all, the, you know, the heartland of American values. Yeah. And I mean, it's also become kind of one of the, the major battlegrounds, I think, in LGBT rights, right? Of like a lot of the, uh, the kind of progress that we saw over the last decade or so seems to be turning back in those areas in particular, right? Yeah. I mean, Iowa's a great point. I mean, they were one of the first states in the country to legalize gay marriage, and now they are on a wave of, of trying to overturn things and, and restrict many of the rights. Yeah. Um, was this always kind of a documentary from the get-go, or how did it evolve into sort of what it became? Initially, we had conceived it as a, uh, as a series, that uh-huh. we would go to different parts of the country and look at different issues that were facing LGBTQ families specific to each region. And uh, Hulu, to start, was interested in this film in particular. Nice. Getting back to that idea of kind of a small crew, I'm curious sort of what it actually looked like when you were out in the field filming these interviews and this B-roll and stuff. Like, what was what was the process actually like? It was Melinda with four men, <laughs> um, and we were four Leos. Oh, jeez. And... It was quite challenging for her. No, we actually had a really good time, but we were a very small crew. We were five people, partly yeah. because you know we were going into people's homes who we didn't really know very well. We'd obviously done a research and, and and had talked with them and zoomed with them and things like that. But you know, when when you're going into somebody's home who's not really used to filming, you want to keep the crew as small as possible, um, and that also helped us be a little more nimble and uh, travel and things like that. So, you know, our, our shooting crew was just the five. And then, of course, we had an editor and a composer and, you know, we added sure. on uh, in post. But uh, we were we were very, very small, uh, very small crew by design. Yeah. I mean, what do you think that afforded you just in terms of the intimacy with your subjects or, you know, working style? Like, did being on a small crew I, I, help? Yeah. In this I mean, well, I... I think it certainly helped in terms of the subjects that we filmed, having less people in their home, yeah. you know, allowed them to be a little more free and, and a little more vulnerable, which Melinda did an amazing job of making them feel comfortable and things like that. In looking back, uh, when we do our next one, I think we'll have one or two more people, yeah, possibly three more. But but the idea of keeping a small one is just, just in terms of movements and things like that, and, and obviously financially, sure. it's better that way. But I think I think the next one we would definitely want to add a few more people. Yeah, I mean, you mentioned the process of sort of finding these people and talking to them beforehand. I am curious to kind of dive deeper into the casting and just was it difficult to find people who wanted to speak on camera and share their experience? And when you did find them, like how did you sort of know which were the stories that you wanted to feature? It was difficult in in both senses. Yeah. Finding people is always complicated, and we went different routes with that, whether going through social media or, gosh, talking to organizations who knew certain people or friends of friends of friends sometimes. Yeah. But then uh, you're right. There were many people who feared recrimination within their communities, particularly at their jobs. Yeah. Um, were not comfortable sharing their stories on camera, understandably so. I mean, that to me, so I'm I'm on the East Coast, I'm outside of Boston, and LGBTQ rights just aren't seen as an issue here. I mean, I'm sure there are individual struggles and things, but it's not a reality when I think of, you know, gay friends, gay family members that are living a day-to-day life. 
I, I don't think of the possibility of job loss because of a lifestyle as being even remotely in the cards at this point. I'm kind of surprised to hear that, I guess, thinking, you know, I guess, were you struck by that look heading into the Midwest and realizing that it may be a, a big cultural shift from from what's happening on the coast? Yeah, I mean, we're both in Los Angeles. So, yeah. you know, we don't really see too much discrimination in terms of gay rights here, sure. which is something what really interested uh, Melinda and I when we sat down and really talked about like, well, you know, we sort of seem to be okay, but what's going on with the rest of the country, particularly after the 2016 election? Yeah. And as the more research we did, we realized like, oh, you know, things are different elsewhere when you're not in a big city, particularly. But even in, in some of the big cities, you know, you, you're still facing some of that, like, you know, Minneapolis, you know, where we went to and things like that. But we really also wanted to explore rural areas and, and sort of down-home heartland areas. Yeah. I'll be honest, like when we were filming in the Midwest, there were certain areas when we were having lunch at a cafe or something like that. And somebody said, oh, you know, one, they all thought we were a rock band. <laughs> Yeah, because uh, three of our other crew members had very long hair. Yeah, and then we said, "No, we're filming a documentary." And they said, "Oh, what's it about?" And I, I, I admittedly, I, I paused for a moment before I said, "Oh, we're doing a gay, you know, we're, we're filming gay families." I had a little bit of a moment where, like, "Oh, what's the reaction going to be?" Whereas yeah. in Los Angeles, I wouldn't even think twice about that. Right. What I mean, what was the reaction when you would say something like that? Was it what was it uh, jarring? I think for the most part, people just went, oh, I remember there was one where he sort of paused and went, oh, and then he just sort of went back to his thing. So he mm. clearly didn't want to talk about it. That, that was a moment where I felt uncomfortable. For the most part, I mean, listen, it wasn't, you know, I wasn't asked all the time. Yeah. Um, it was it was pretty good. Yeah. I think as Nia in the film points out, who's trans, that for her, it's it's not necessarily that someone will say something to your face. Yeah. They won't say something anti-trans. Right. However- that doesn't mean that they won't vote against you. Yeah, and you know she says start a letter campaign to uh, to take away your rights. So part of that was the negative side of Midwestern nice. Yeah, well, I mean that's something she spoke to. I think very. Sp- I think it was her. Um, somebody in the film had talked about kind of Iowa nice. I think. Uh, yeah, that's that's Nian. Yeah, and ju- just this notion that like. I don't know. So I, I grew up outside of Cleveland, Ohio, uh, and then lived uh, outside of Kansas City for about a year as well. And so have some of my, my family still in the Kansas City area, um, have some experience with those two parts of the country. And yeah, I was in both instances, more so in Missouri, I think, struck with niceness in air quotes, because it it never felt genuine to me. It always felt weirdly passive aggressive and controlling and like when nia said that like i was like oh yeah iowa nice okay like i I understood what she was saying but yeah i I guess getting back to kind of the casting piece of it too and just sort of the difficulties of finding people once you found your subjects how willing were they to participate i guess well part of the reason why we refer to these families as courageous before lgbtq is because yes, it is. It's it's a big consideration to be out yeah. <laughs> in a national way, and your communities. There's a great possibility they will see the film, and how are they going to respond to you in that capacity? You know, in the marketing campaign, we we really wanted to focus on that these are authentic stories about courageous families. You know, obviously they're LGBTQ families, yeah. but that quality comes first other than the identity. Right. And let's not forget, we had a family that we had done a lot of research with and, and a lot of conversations with. And two days before we were to go to Wisconsin, they backed out. Mm. 
they just sort of, I guess, got cold feet. One of the guys was really worried about his job yeah. and didn't want to risk that. And so um, there was a mad scramble and, you know, we ha- we obviously had a backup family. But, you know, there was great concern with these families. But I think, you know, Melinda did such a great job of making them feel comfortable, particularly when we were in the home. And, you know, we would talk a little bit before filming while the crew was getting set up and things like that. And so I, I think once the cameras were rolling, I was very surprised at how open and vulnerable these families were with us and sharing, you know, some of their lives and some of their hardships. And, and, you know, what was great about it is that, you know, we also got to see some of their joys yeah. about being, you know, in family life, uh, being a, as a gay family. Yeah. I wanted to touch on something that you both mentioned there as you're talking about these families and that's the idea of family, because I think that was a recurring theme in this film as well, that I think in every case, or at least in most cases, these are couples raising kids together as well. And it wasn't just an individual story, but it's often a very complex story um, that involved children or, or ex-spouses or you know other, other situations. Why was that important to make this particularly showcasing the family side? I mean, I mean one of the reasons is, you know, when we, when we were researching, we really realized like there are not really too many documentaries about gay families. Mm. There's many documentaries about the coming out process and and how you know doctors and lawyers can be gay and lesbian as well as you know typical people or straight people and uh, I think we were just really wanted to feature families because it was sort of something new and exciting for us and we thought hmm let's get into that it also provided levels of awareness and understanding for example in Jen and Deb's story yeah. how much it affected Jen's transition in particular affected the kids, the entire family. So being able to show that ripple effect, that it's not just, it is an individual choice or necessity, but that it doesn't stop there. And that was interesting to us. And as a father, you know, with kids, I just, you know, it's one thing when somebody is racist or discriminatory against gay people, but then you're involving the kids. And I think like, I would hope that people really sort of pause and consider the implications of what their hatred is about and how that affects, you know, the younger generation. That was important for me to get to hear from the kids. Yeah. I mean, that came up in particular in Kansas with Courtney and Denise and their son. And I I mean, at one point they're talking about he was being bullied in school and they went to the administrators and they said, well, what do you expect was was the administrator's response. I guess it, it gets back at this notion that we've been talking about throughout this, that there is a difference culturally. You know, one piece too that was kind of threaded throughout this was the notion of church came into a couple of different stories. Uh, obviously, particularly in Katie's, but uh, Mario and Monty also touched on it, I think. How surprised were you or how aware were you of just how deep kind of the church aspect of, of Midwestern culture was? Well, I think we were aware of it to a degree, but not to the degree that we discovered in the filming process. Yeah. And it makes sense because, uh, how do I put this? The church, it is the community often. It is someone's community. Right. So I think it's particularly heartbreaking when you're no longer able to be comfortably part of that community. Yeah. I mean, it's, it is interesting too, I guess. I feel, I feel strange kind of having this conversation, I guess, because so much of it for me 
is at arm's length. And I feel like in watching the film and in talking about it now, almost like a, like a cultural anthropologist or something. Whereas, you know, I, I do have family members still all throughout the Midwest. I have family members that are gay that live in the Midwest. Like it's not as strange as it seems, but at the same point, like, I guess what I'm getting at is just kind of, it is clear sort of how divided we are in America and just how many different realities we're all living in right now. And it's getting worse. It is. Yeah. <laughs> and that's, that's kind of the strange part. I, I guess for you both too, like what was your experience with the Midwest coming into the, like how much of any of these stories were personal for either of you and how much were you coming into it as kind of anthropologists or, you know, sociologists looking from afar? Well, David just mentioned that as a father in particular, I think there's always that personal connection and being part of the LGBTQ plus community, I think that you feel a bit of a connection to my parents, my all my extended families from Ohio. Okay. And I was born there, whisked away to the desert as a baby. Okay. But we would go back in the summers and see my parents, family, extended family there. And it was a different culture. I was yeah. aware at a very early age from growing up in Tucson, which was a very liberal city, to going to see family members in Ohio. You could sense the difference yeah. in culture. I didn't think of it beyond that, you know, whether that was good or bad, it was just different. But as, you know, we think about these you know, mentioned at the beginning that these issues are increasing, particularly in the Midwest. And it's ironic because Iowa, for example, was passing one to support marriage equality very early on, and they've just done a 180. Yeah. And that's disappointing to say the least. And for me going in there, you know, I'm a, I'm a parent. So obviously I was identifying with the other parents there and on different levels, you know, with, with Mario and Monte, they had, they had a newborn. So I, of course, was reflecting on what it was like when, you know, my children were first born yeah. and then seeing, you know, with Katie and, and Nia, you know, my kids are around their age. And so sort of seeing what that was like. And then of course, imagining what it's going to be like with Merrick, you know, when yeah. they get older. So I was definitely identifying on that. But one of the things I realized is, you know, as parents and adults, we can make such an impression on children. And when you're racist or you have this discrimination, what sort of value are you teaching your kids? Yeah. You know, I'm really sort of disturbed by that. Yeah. I mean, I thought of that with the church aspect too, going back to that for a minute of like Nia and Katie's story. And Katie, as I understand it, had been like a pastor or a preacher or something in her church. They were, I should contextualize where people haven't seen it. They were a cis hetero couple that I think they met in high school. They were like high school sweethearts or college sweethearts, but married young, Element. had kids. Elementary. Okay. So yeah, it goes yeah. back a long ways. But yeah. but we're we're a male, female, hetero couple the whole time, and Nia comes out as trans and it flips kind of the dynamics of their whole relationship, but that core is still intact. And and Katie's reaction to, to Nia being trans is okay, well, you're the person that I love. We're gonna figure this out. And kind of seeing that modeled in the film. And then seeing that couple and other couples expelled from churches, or we talked about, you know, fear of losing employment, you know, things like that, where I'm just like, what's going on? Like, what are we teaching, right? If the point is to love everybody, love thy neighbor, you know, whatever the, the lesson is in the church, to immediately then exclude somebody because you don't approve of, of a difference. Like, the, I don't the know. Irony, I, 
Yeah, right. And I, I would just I was so struck by Katie's strength in the story in in the film. I mean, their love is such an example of the power of love. You know, yeah. the vows through thick and thin and sickness and in health and and you know transition. I guess we can start to add that in there. They really just exemplified how beautiful and loving their relationship is. And I was very struck by that. I mean, particularly, you know, when we were in their house talking about what it identify with is, you know, as Katie was talking to their kids or having them do something, I thought like, wow, she's just such a cool mom. You know, I wish my mom had been like that. (laughs) You know, so I I really, I really, I was really very fond of their family. I mean, I still am, but I was, I was, I was while we were filming as well. Sure. Of course. And I mean, opening with them as well, that feels like a a deliberate choice in terms of how the film is paced. Um, Talk to me about the decision to have them as as the first couple featured, the first family featured. Oh, as you you mentioned and David mentioned, I think it introduces you right away to the process of what happens when someone transitions. Hmm. That in this case, it's embraced within the family, both by Nia's spouse, Katie, as well as the children. You know, they just kind of went with it and, you know, which was lovely. On the other hand, you know, the contrast with the church uh, and even the community, me and Katie both said there's just this, even if no one directly confronts you, it's a low level of stress. You know, Mm. will this be acceptable in this restaurant? Will people stare? Will people actually say something to our children? So I think that because that particular story showcased their personal lives as well as the discrimination within the church and, you know, a certain fear of or uncomfortableness in the community at large. It felt like a powerful way to begin the film. Yeah. Um, There was another choice in the film that I I wanted to ask you about, and that was uh, including Representative uh, Heather Keeler from Minnesota as part of this. So she's an indigenous lesbian uh, representative, but there's also, I feel like, just kind of the legislativeness, I guess, that she represents, right? Of like realizing that 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 this discrimination is not just on the ground, but that it is being written into law books across states right now too. I wonder, sort of, how much you wanted her to to stand in for a piece of that, or just the the, the decision to include her for multiple reasons, I guess. Well, I mean, one of them being, you know, politics is a part of what it's like to be a gay family. And I think that there do need to be some rules and strategies and, and, and laws implemented to secure the rights of these families, uh, particularly when there is a faction of, of people trying to take away the rights. And I think it's an important uh, piece of the story to include the politics so that that was definitely one of the one of our pieces, and of course, you know, she was also a, a mother of children as well. So you know, we're we're still dealing with a family. Yeah, and you can see too, as a public figure, the extremity of those responses. You know, the families in the film are known in their communities, their churches, their schools. Heather Keeler is known in the house. You know, so the fact that she still receives death threats regularly showcases that if you are an an out person in the world creating pieces of legislation that hopefully are helpful to the LGBTQ community, you you face extreme extreme <laughs> hate often mm. and wanting to say, hey, you know, this is not only a piece of the puzzle in terms of political 
action, but also it showcases the degree to which this is still an issue. Yeah. I mean, I'm curious, and I know this is outside the scope of the film, so it's totally okay if you don't have an opinion on it, but I, I am curious just sort of thinking about this backlash that's been happening, especially legislatively. And I mean, like I think of within my own family, again, you know, having gay family members and seeing just the embrace of them from people on both sides of the political spectrum. And, you know, like it's, it hasn't been an issue within my own family, but I guess I am sort of surprised that we can go from a place where when gay marriage passed nationally, it seemed like most people were on board. From my perspective, it was like, okay, that's fine. Like, that's what's happening now. And people didn't seem to give it a second thought in kind of the national conversation cut to a decade or so later. And it's all these regressive bills, not just about, you know, LGBTQ people, but about books and schools and, you know, every, I mean, like every aspect of this is trying to be legislated. What do you think changed in our culture over that decade or so? I think it happened much sooner than a decade. I, I think yeah. the 2016 election was a huge turning point. And I think people felt emboldened to be able to speak out, to be more racist and be more discriminatory. And, and that is really what was the impetus to begin this project for Melinda and I. So I, I think that the, those four years certainly didn't help matters. Yeah. Think about it now. I mean, you know, and, and we're in it now, you know, the, the third most powerful person in government you know, Speaker Mike Johnson holds, you know, very well-known anti-discriminatory views about the people featured in our film, about, about, about me. So, you know, we're, we're in the thick of it right now. And, and yes, I think that many people thought that gay marriage solved everything, um, but clearly it did not. You know, discrimination still exists. And listen, they overturned Roe versus Wade. We have a Supreme Court justice that is on the record saying that he thinks marriage equality should be overturned. So, you know, we're in trying times right now. And I, I think, too, that those opinions are always there. It's not that they were suddenly created. Mm. But it's like, don't ask, don't tell. Yeah. The minute marriage equality is codified, the minute we say this is legal in our country, I think that it, be, it that created the backlash mm. among people who were already discriminatory. Yeah. Again, don't ask, don't tell is okay. Oh, wait a minute. You have the same rights that we do? Oh, not okay. Yeah. Again, being in a big city bubble was very surprised by that, but it was there. Yeah. It didn't go away. That It didn't go away with, with marriage equality. I think it, in some ways, exacerbated it because you, ha you had to uh, accept it. I mean, I'm curious, too, like the film obviously – is is one piece of all this that helps people perhaps empathize or hear stories that they might not be exposed to or something else. But like David in particular, just thinking of, I could see the passion as, as you were answering that last question and talking about, you know, this is really a fight for, for in both of your cases for your existence. Like, what does that actually look like, I guess, beyond just like, I, I guess in some ways I feel like we're beyond just hey, look, here's a gay family. They're normal too. Like, it's life or death for a lot of people. And I, I, I guess for either of you, like, what does is, what is activism in 2024 look like? And, and how do you keep this issue front of mind knowing that there is this kind of tidal wave pushing against it? Well, I, 
you know, I, I think it's very different than the Stonewall riots. I think it's very different than Larry Kramer's time in the 80s. You know, it's it's much more subdued. I don't think people want to see people with their arms up in the air with flags and, and, and banners and things like that. I think, I, I think that perhaps Secretary Buttigieg has a more nuanced way of slowly and gradually informing people that they have a right to exist and should be treated with decency. And they're not really much different than, you know, than straight families. Yeah. So I, I don't think that there's a Larry Kramer out there anymore. I don't, I don't think that that is the approach that people will be open to, which is unfortunate because, you know, I, I think that, you know, for, for as, as much as Larry was a very vocal person, um, he helped create a change in this country, you know, yeah. Harvey Milk. You know, yeah. these are some of our, our the gay leaders. Um, and I don't know who, you know, there's nobody like that today. So maybe I'm hoping that Buttigieg's approach will be successful. Yeah. And as as filmmakers, our goal has been to tell stories. Right. And I think that the way to speak to people is to bring them into a story if they are relating to the participants in the film. That may subtly, you know, it's hard to have awareness of a person and then as a person yeah, and then lose that awareness. Right. An example, we had a premiere in Los Angeles and my partner brought her Trump supporting cousin. And I thought, oh, gee, you know, this will be <laughs> this will be interesting. And honestly, at first I, I was like, oh, why are you doing that? And then I thought, this is good. Yeah. You know, she's a lovely person. This is not a mean person. This is a person who would races us because she knows us as people. Yeah. And yet she votes for someone who will willfully uh, follow anti-LGBTQ legislation and act that. So what she said afterwards was very telling. She said, first of all, I enjoyed the film. It was entertaining. And I think that, you know, our goal was not to be preachy at all. Right. So she enjoyed it, and she said, the second thing was I really, I was rooting for these people, and and she said, I think I need to think more about this community mm. and be more respectful to that community. And I thought, gosh, you know, again, this, the film, as filmmakers, it should just be entertaining. It, these should be good stories. Ideally, though, you're rooting for the people within the film, and if that leads to awareness and the possibility of really seeing what voting does. You know, I, I think it's a minority of the population of extremists who really have hate in their yeah. hearts. Yeah. I think it's more a lack of awareness. And, and and to be fair, I think that those extremists are on both sides of the aisle. Sure. You know, yeah. I think the majority of the people really want to just coexist and live and in, in, you know, you have the right and you can certainly vote for who you wish. But think about who you're voting for and, and what their leadership, you know, entails. And I think that that's where people really need to sort of pause for a moment and, and, and see what exactly is voting for this person really going to do for the country as a whole and yeah. whatnot, particularly when I think people just want to exist. They just want to have a family. They want to be able to be financially secure and enjoy life. Um, and I think that's hard. That's obviously harder to do right now in the times that we're in. And to quote Nia in the beginning of the film, you know, she says, we are not issues, we're people. 
Right. And I think that can be forgotten when you go to vote. You may you may think, oh, either I don't support that issue or I'm indifferent to that issue, more yeah. likely. But once those issues are personified, once you see the people behind the issues, it's. I think it's hard to unsee those people. Right. I mean, that was interesting when you were just talking about your, your partner's cousin coming to the premiere and, and this film changing their mind. Like, I'm thinking, well, this person's been related to your partner all these years, too. Like, has has this model right there. I want, you know, it, it is interesting just how art can change our perception of things that often it can reframe things that our everyday life. So, you know, sometimes we don't notice in our everyday life, I guess, which is a unique characteristic of it. And it just it opens your mind. I don't know that it's changed her mind, but it's opened her mind. Yeah. And I think, OK, good to really see beyond, you know, and uh, no offense to her, but a rather narrow point of view. Yeah. To say, gosh, you know, this this affects more people than I thought in ways that I didn't know. Yeah. It, it's, it's also one of the reasons why we wanted to include, you know, the Nebraska neighbors, you know, yeah. who who voted for, for Trump. And, and to say, like, listen, you know, we can still coexist with one another regardless of which president you vote for. You know, you just need to sort of pause and think about, you know, what this country stands for and, and whatnot and, and what, what what you believe in. And particularly when you have children, you know, you really want to teach them to do the right thing. Yeah. I mean, it also gets at this issue that I think Russ, the, he's the teacher in Ohio, right? He, he had touched on this idea of kind of intersectionality a little bit. He didn't use that word, I don't think. But he talked about just sort of, you know, racial struggles, gender struggles, sexuality, disability, kind of all these different uh, parts of people's identity. And I don't know, as I've gotten more involved in kind of social justice work and heard from from different people on different sides of all these these issues, I'm amazed how much overlap there is that, you know, a, a homophobic issue can be a transphobic issue, can be a, a racist issue. And I'm wondering just sort of like as we talk about voting or, or laws or any of that, like from from where I sit, I guess. If different communities could kind of come together and realize that they have a shared cause that is often, you know, rooted in in white supremacy or patriarchy or, you know, all these different things, like if everybody kind of banded together, all their individual things could be helped by by trying to uplift that one greater good, I guess. You know, like there's there's more people, I guess, when you add up all the different minorities, there's more people in that group than there is in kind of the homogenized America. Do either of you see it that way? Meaning if all... Just if sort all of that the, 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 we, we think of things, I guess, as, as black issues or as Asian issues or as gay issues or as trans issues, but that often they're, they're human issues and that, you know, discrimination is discrimination, I guess. Bigotry is bigotry. Like, I guess that's sort of what I'm trying to get at. And, and I think the way to be able to, to, to have that conversation is to sort of, you know, inform people of what these issues are. And and hopefully, you know, our film, which we're very proud of, does that. You know, we, yeah. we obviously wanted to make it an entertaining film, but we also wanted to be informative and, and, and to make, you know, people aware of the issues that exist. And when you're talking about family values, you know, gay families have family values as well. This is not just a white heterosexual, you know, core belief. So yeah. um, as filmmakers and as documentarians, you know, it's important for us for that social justice cause to 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 put that out there for audiences to see and inform your own opinion. I mean, 
if at the end of, at the end of our film you still don't like gay or the LGBTQ spectrum, there's not much I'm probably anybody is going to be able to do to change that. But right. if we have somebody like Melinda's partner's cousin that can pause for a moment and think, well, you know what, maybe maybe I should reconsider, then you know, wow, that's that's fantastic. I think a lot of people need to reconsider sort of some of their their long held beliefs and where those beliefs came from. Most likely, your parents. Yeah. There was a moment in the film too that that kind of spoke to me, and that was there was a, a non-binary uh, teenager, and and their mother um, were kind of interviewed together, and the mother was like, "Look, I don't understand this at all, but I I'm working to accept it." I think it was something along those lines. Um, how much do you think there is a generational divide? And like. I hate saying that, that like, oh, when, when young people take over, this is all going to go away because I don't know that that's entirely true. But like, did you, did you see a generational divide as you were talking to younger kids and, you know, the, the children of, of these families? Well, I think to that point with Vin and her mom, Sarah, the, the comment, yeah, was, I don't understand, but I want to, but yeah. that was a really beautiful way of putting it. I'm not sure if it's a generational gap, but it was just gosh, you know, it, it's honest and open to say, I don't get this. I don't yeah. understand. Yeah. But on the other hand, I love you and I want to. Yeah. As it, that to me is the most honest, positive thing you can say within that situation. Yeah. But is it intergenerational? I, I, what do you think, David? I, I don't know. I, I thought it was a beautiful moment in the film because, you know, listen, we hear stories of people when they come out, their parents disown them. Yeah. You know, I mean, that still happens in 2024 now. There were other people in the film that that happened to. Yeah, there were other right? stories I mean, that, right in the film. That is, sure, that is crazy to me that you can disown your child because they've come out of the closet. You know, as a father, I certainly don't understand that. I don't know how any how any parent can do that to their child. Yeah, and then times are changing. This country has always had changing things and attitudes and things like that. And I think younger people are more open to some of these changes and question some of the things. And I don't think that there's any harm in that. Yeah. It's when an adult says you can't do that, you shouldn't do that right. is when there's a problem. And I mean, so much of it and, and so much, honestly, from my perspective of kind of the legislation and things that are coming on the scene now, it, it seems to be rooted in this fear that like, if my child discovers that there's LGBTQ issues, <laughs> you know, whatever, that they will be converted. And I just like... It's such a ridiculous notion that like somebody can be turned gay or bi or trans or whatever, but that idea still exists out there, right? Like people still feel that way. I'm not so much sure that the younger generation feels that way. Sure. I, I, I think, you know, an older generation obviously feels that way. Hopefully they'll watch the film and they'll pause and reconsider. Maybe not. Or they'll become gay. <laughs> right? <laughs> I mean, you know, yeah. Maybe. Sorry, um, a little there. No, yeah. no. I mean, but but it's true. I mean that, and that. To, I guess to me, like that notion is just like people are going to see themselves and say, "Oh, that now I have a word for that thing I've always felt," rather than, "Oh, maybe I should feel that." Like you know, it, people are who they are. I think at least, and that's you know, that was definitely uh, something in the film. Kind of wrapping it all up, you you mentioned that this at one time could have been a series, and you know. Midwest was was chapter one. Will there be a chapter two? Can you say? And whether or not there is one, where would you want the next one to be, do you think? We certainly hope there is a chapter two. 
Um, we are researching right now and we're, we're, we're moving forward. So, you know, we'll, we'll see what happens with that. And the South it wouldn't be to us the next logical focus, just given, you know, the book banning and the don't say gay issues. You yeah. know, it feels so critical and crucial at this time to see how LGBTQ families are faring. So, you know, we think that would be the best place to go. Yeah. I wonder, just as a as a thought experiment, like if you were to go to, you know, the Northeast or the Northwest or California, like, I wonder how much of this is bubbling under the surface. Like, again, we, we thought a decade ago that, okay, marriage equality passed, everything's good. Like, could Massachusetts look like Iowa in 10 years? I hope not. But, you know, I wonder just... I, I imagine there are parts of Massachusetts that would, you know, like to reverse things. You know, I, yeah. I would definitely like to explore the entire country. Yeah. And, you know, Katie says at the end of their segment that, you know, what, what place ultimately will feel safe? Yeah. You know, leaving the Midwest is not necessarily the, uh, the solution that they could, you know, land anywhere and face that sort of, if nothing else, that rumble of discrimination, that that constant level of stress. And I think that can do as, as much damage as something very specific because yeah. you can't address it right. in the same way. You can't tell your kids, well, I'm sorry, and this was obviously wrong. Yeah, You know, it's just how do you, in, uh, yeah, how, how do you cope with, I don't feel comfortable in general where I, where I live, which is just, awful feeling yeah um well thank you both for the film and for the discussion today uh, i really appreciate your time and uh yeah I, it, it was it was a great film and uh, i i'm looking forward to wherever <laughs> chapter two lands thank you. if and when thank you so much we enjoyed this i just realized that was a horrible note to end on so <laughs> um do we want to end and we, we could I, I was i was trying to think too of like where where else can we go and I, i'm trying a horrible to, do, note to end. <laughs> is there a, is there a happy note we can end on i i know what what david would say that love is love <laughs> <laughs> that there's still that there is within these families and i hope everyone sees that there is still a lot of joy you know, it's not just about, oh, we're facing these issues and it's, of course they are, and it's scary and it's challenging, but it's amazing to us how much love there is within the families, even, you know, despite these challenges, how much joy, frankly. So it's it's not, again, it's not a preachy film. It's not a negative film. Yeah. It's a film with a lot of heart. All right. Melinda Merker, David Clayton Miller. What'd you think? Did we uh, did we get there? Did we end on a happy note? I think we got there. I think we did. It's a tough time to be hopeful. I'll be honest. There is a lot of shit going down, and we've all got to pay attention. We've all got to be vigilant. And I, I mean, ultimately, what it comes down to is we've all got to participate, right? Like this government, it's not just about voting every two years or every four years. It's about being active. It's about having your voice heard. It's about talking to your representatives, telling them what your priorities are. If that is not listened to, it's about being out there protesting and letting people know that you demand change. That's where we are. If we want to keep this democracy, it requires participation from all of us. So keep that in mind. Think about how what you do matters. And go watch the film We Live Here, the Midwest, from Melissa and David. I hope you'll enjoy it. 
Again, I publish my newsletter every Wednesday and every Sunday. If you'd like to get on the list, go to heathrasala.com slash newsletter. You will get new issues in your inbox. And if you'd like to have a paying membership, you help support the work I do on this podcast as well. Really appreciate it. I'm at Heath Rosella on all the social media platforms. Give me a follow. Let's connect over there and leave a review on Apple. Five stars. Write something nice. Thank you for listening. I'll see you in two weeks. Stay safe. <laughs>